You're listening to Seattle Real Estate Podcast. The mansion on Emerson Street. That sounds ominous, doesn't it? It does. As homelessness continues to rise, an overwhelmed city issues an ultimatum. This sounds like the intro to a scary movie. 48 hours to clear the camp. Kind of sounds like, um, uh, what's that uh, one movie where just lawlessness happens overnight? Um, uh, geez, I'll remember. Uh, we'll talk about it soon. Why are we talking about homelessness on a real estate channel, on a real estate podcast? Because this affects neighborhoods. Neighborhoods are real estate. The neighborhoods where you have greater levels of continuity, where things are more cookie cutter, those are the areas where values increase. Other areas that have garbage issues, that have basically a lot of crime going on, that have uh, aesthetic issues with, oh, people don't really want to drive down those streets. Those aren't the areas that appreciate as well as the other ones that have a little bit more control and city leaders kind of, you know, patrol things and keep things in line. That's what we're talking about today. We're talking about homelessness and with the whole pandemic and the CDC basically saying, don't, don't do any sweeps of homeless encampments. Cities have had the ability to kind of clean up on the go as they go in the past. What the pandemic has done is it's created this situation where homeless encampments are just allowed to basically sprawl. And in a lot of cities, they've just gotten wildly out of control. German and Venice down in California in Venice Beach is an excellent example of that. Um, and he gave gave a, gave us a quick message. Hey, thanks for mentioning us on the channel. So he's looking at my content as well. And the thing that I enjoy about German and Venice is he doesn't shy away from taking on this situation. And I kind of try and do the same thing from a real estate guy's background, which is, all right, you want to be compassionate to the people who are down on their luck? Yep, get that. City leadership needs to be taking more control and handling the situation of mental illness and addiction, not letting its citizens basically live their lives out shooting up on the streets. But that's a whole, you know, there's, there's just these massive complex issues in kind of making that you know, along making long term solutions. You've got affordable housing that is there isn't any in a city like Seattle. Just we, we don't have it. It's basically gone. California, the same thing. And yet you've got these homeless encampments that all of a sudden have gotten out of control. And what do we do? Cities are now sweeping them. So the mansion on Emerson Street, 48 hours to clear the camp. And I've covered a bunch of these sweeps, and there's a lot of different storylines going on. So we're going to read um, kind of a, a long, continuous storyline from the Washington Post. I know what you're going to say, but hear me out. Follow me to the end here, okay? Because even if a lot of the stuff in this article is, uh, yeah, if we, if we had some uh, if it's not entirely 100% accurate, there's some storylines here that I think are really worthy of uh, checking out and, and talking about. And that's what we're going to do. If you're new here, my name is Sean Reynolds. I own a couple of real estate companies. I own a residential real estate brokerage. We sell real estate. I also own an appraisal company. But more importantly, we're here reading the news. Let's get into it. So Portland, Oregon, Jeremy Woldridge had just finished mowing the grass around his tent when he saw a truck pull up in front of his homeless encampment. All right, first sentence. I'm like, all right, so the dude's got a lawn, no house, but he's got a lawnmower. 
He's got some gas for the for said lawnmower, and the lawnmower works. All right. He'd spent the past two years living here alongside a dead-end road in a neighborhood called Sumner, gradually overtaking a vacant field between a taxi company and a high school. He knew most of the fa nearby families by name and the makes and models of their cars, but this was a visitor he didn't recognize. He watched as three people got out and started coming toward his tent with a bright green sign labeled illegal campsite. They walked past the small flower bed he'd planted nearby and up to a hand-painted boulder he'd placed on the sidewalk that read, welcome to our home. All right. So you want to, you want to feel good about this story so far, as far as, oh, he's painting welcome to our home and he's mowing the lawn. All right. But he's on public property, correct? He has set up camp illegally on public property. That's, that's where we're at. And what do you think the neighbors think of that? We're going to get into that. And that's where I'm kind of like, ah, uh, not so much. No matter how good it sounds, we have got story after story after story, homeless encampments, not being safe for the people in them, not being safe for the people around them, right? So can I help you? Jeremy asked, talking to the people with the illegal encampment notices. They handed him a box filled with sandwiches, bottled water, a new tent, and a sleeping bag, and then introduced themselves as contractors for the city. So that's it, he said. You came here to deliver gifts? Good question. No, we need to start moving you out of here, one of those contractors said. I hate to say it, but it's time to go. And this is my big thing, is that all of these homeless encampments know that they are on borrowed time because what they're doing is illegal. And then you've got a group of people saying, but they don't have anywhere else to go. All right. Well, we need to figure that out because in the downtown cores and in residential neighborhoods, that is not the plan. And on, how about on school property? How about we've got Broadview K through eight here in Seattle where you've literally got a homeless encampment on school property or have had. Has that been cleared out yet? I don't think it has because I think that we'd see that story. But um, you've got a homeless encampment on school property and the school board has said, we don't believe in sweeps. Okay. But you've just got this nuttiness going on. After more than a year of allowing mo most homeless camps to remain intact so as not to displace people during the pandemic, cities across the country are now beginning to confront another public health crisis unfolding on their streets. The number of Americans who are homeless has increased in each of the past five years, according to government data. And for the first time, more than half of homeless adults are living not in shelters, but in tents or sleeping bags outside. There has yet to be a nationwide homelessness count since the start of the pandemic. But a quarter of Americans now report being at imminent risk of losing their homes and cities up and down the West Coast are, are say they are overwhelmed by an unprecedented rise in homeless people, hazardous encampments and related trash. All right. Those are cities that have allowed this to happen, right? Seattle, good example. I live in Bellevue, not happening here. Not one tent, not one tent. How is that? How is that? Because political leadership here in Bellevue says, no, that's living in a park is not an appropriate place for you to be living. Here are services. Here are places you can go to and they handle it. They follow the same protocol everybody else should be following. And yet with this whole pandemic thing, these areas that already had encampments, they've just been allowed to sprout. I mean, literally just grow like mushrooms. 
German and Venice had a uh, guy on his pod on his uh, one of his videos that um, basically called him out on, hey, you're not making this look good in the right light. And German and Venice basically said, I love Venice. He'd been there. He's been there 30 years. And he basically just wanders around, um, you know, Los Angeles and specifically Venice and takes video of what's going on. And he's got like 188,000. He's got to be getting close to 200,000 subscribers. I mean, that's that that's great. I mean, that's, that's amazing. I mean, that's an amazing run. He took a very kind of narrow topic homelessness in in Venice and what it's like to live in Venice now. And he's just run with it. And he's probably got more coverage than a lot of major media. So I say, hey, that's awesome. And so that's why I follow a lot of his coverage, because it's like real, it's a real dude walking around with some kind of camera. And you can kind of see what's going on. But the argument is that you're not showing this in the right light. All right. So how about um, two people found dead after fire at Seattle homeless encampment? Okay, that happened uh, June 14th. Two people dead, a fire occurred. How often do these encampments get shut down? Because a fire happens, fire department is called multiple, multiple, multiple times or 911 because of crime shootings. How about this one? Man shot to death in Northeast Seattle homeless encampment May 31st, just a few weeks ago. He was in his tent with his significant other. Guy comes up looking for money. Guy gets out of his tent to confront the guy looking for money. Guy looking for money blasts him in the chest, kills him. So that's the kind of stuff you've got going on in homeless encampments. And people are saying, well, you, you just, you, you just need to be more tolerant and let the, they're not harming anybody. Well, no, actually they are. And they're harming the people around them and the people that can't take their kids or their dogs to the parks, the needles, the garbage, you name it. We're going to get into it though. Um, cause this article, it, it does give, an accurate kind of portrayal of this whole process of kicking somebody out of a park. There has yet to be a nationwide homelessness count since the start of the pandemic, but a quarter of Americans now report being at imminent risk of losing their homes and cities up and down the West Coast are saying they are overwhelmed by an unprecedented rise in homeless people, hazardous encampments, and related trash. I don't know if you've seen any video of uh, Skid Row in LA. It's not looking good. Not, and that's going to take forever to clear out. And I think Portland, yeah, here we go. This month, as Portland announced plans to restart removing more camps, the city said it has gone from having an average of about six large encampments before the pandemic to what it now estimates to be more than 100. One of them was Jeremy's camp on Emerson Street, which has grown during the last year into a small village of six tents and five makeshift structures built from fencing, wood pallets, we know how wood pallets end up when fire is, uh, you know, distributed to them. Disassembled trampoline parts and tarps. The disassembled trampoline parts. It's an interesting one. I have not heard that before. The field was covered with 10 foot high piles of scavenged construction materials. Probably no rats in there, right? And strewn between the tents were rotting couches, car parts, a piano, cement mixer, and dozens of bicycles in various stages of disrepair. Bike parts in homeless encampments, those are used as currency, often used to buy drugs. Same thing with what we've got going with the catalytic converter epidemic of you know, having those stolen. That is a real thing. 
The camp had also grown during the past year to attract more people, a few of whom were newly homeless and others who came and went to visit friends or stay for a night. The nearby school and surrounding neighbors had filed a series of complaints to the city as a divide intensified over what to make of an emerging homeless crisis. The neighborhood looked at the encampment and saw suspicious cars, noxious campfire smoke, unleashed dogs, petty crime, drug paraphernalia, and other field of hazardous waste in a city that the mayor said was becoming a shocking affront to the senses. My oldest son was just down in Portland this last weekend for a wedding, I believe, and he said it was pretty rough. But Jeremy, who was 43, saw the only possessions he owned, items he could repair, trade, or sell in order to live a life on the distant margins of a city where he increasingly had nowhere else to go. So you just start trashing my things, he said to the contractors. No, it's a process, one of them said. We can put things in storage for you. You can take whatever you want as long as we clear this area. We'll get back to get started in 48 hours. Can I get 72? Sorry, bud, it's 48. So these homeless encampments, they know that they are on borrowed time and that basically they're they're living in these sprawling encampments because of the coronavirus. At some point, there's going to be a day of reckoning for this camp. It was when this story was written, right? You got to sweep it. We got to sweep it. And what invariably happens, so the the headline I read to you, man shot in death in Northeast Seattle homeless encampment. Guess how quickly that homeless encampment got swept after the murder? Pretty quick, like a day or two later. You have enough complaints, complaint, complaint, complaint. Oh, we got a murder. Okay, yeah, we need to get on that. Let's address that. And a lot of it has to do with the city only has so many resources to you know take care of this issue, to work on this issue. And so they're literally just doing what they can. And it, it's a mess. It's just a mess. The contractors drove away and Jeremy walked up to a hill overlooking the camp. He started writing down an inventory of all of his belongings until after a while, another resident came up to join him. Shannon Stickler, who's 48, has ne- has been living in the encampment on and off for a few months. Ever since she was temporarily laid off from her job during the pandemic and forced out of her three-bedroom home after following $7,500 behind on rent, she'd moved with her 13-year-old daughter into a relative's house, and then into a budget motel, and finally into their Hyundai Elantra. Eventually, she put her belongings into storage and sent her daughter to live with a friend. She'd packed a suitcase of clothes, carpentry tools for her construction job, therapy coloring books, and Zoloft, and moved into the only place she could think to go, a homeless camp four blocks from her house where she'd been living when the pandemic began. It seems like every place I go disappears once I get there, she told Jeremy. What options do we have? Well, the option with the the homeless encampment is that it's it's not a permanent solution and they're at risk of being swept. And the inhabitants know it. They get their, their grocery carts, load up their grocery carts, they move them. I've been watching a handful of grocery carts that have got possessions in them. Well done. But there's like four of them on a street and it's they've just like literally been abandoned. I who knows what happened? Did somebody forget that all their possessions and this is in a nice neighborhood of Seattle. It's on my way to the freeway once I'm trying to trying to get back to the east side. But I've been watching that and it's like somebody just literally forgot their stuff there or they got involved in something else and they're not able to come back. I don't know. Um so the the question is 
is uh, what options do we have? Bad ones, Jeremy said. Portland had limited affordable housing, and after more than a decade spent living on the street, he didn't want to move into a shelter and adhere to someone else's rules. Okay, so when you don't have options, you're going to be forced to follow the rules. And that is where a lot of folks kind of break down. We've already got instances in this story of probably some mental issues that people are trying to work on. They need help for that. They need care for that. Addictions, those those involve so many people in the homeless encampments. They need help for that. They need the services to try and get them to where they need to go. So where will we go? Shannon asked. Sorry if I'm being slow. I'm new to all this. Jeremy shrugged. I don't know any more than you. We've got two days and then we'll have to figure something out. And that's a lot of what I see when I'm walking around is people know they got to go, but they're just like, all right, yeah, we're going to get pushed out. We're going to go somewhere, wherever that may be. So the Sumner neighborhood was one of the smallest communities in Portland, 850 modest houses on the outskirts of town, a home to middle class families and retirees in a city where most other places had become unaffordable. A quiet sequestered little area was how Sumner advertised itself. And yet like almost everywhere else in Portland, it had become a destination for a growing number of people without housing. Yvonne Rice was the chair of the Neighborhood Association, and she'd grown up in Sumner where it had no visible homeless population. Now there were a dozen nearby encampments, and week after week, she saw more tents lined up by the fence of the high school, more hammocks strung between Douglas Firs and the community park, and hundreds of tarps and sleeping bags bordering the highway. That's what you see when you go through Portland, and it is not a good look. All of the encampments troubled her, but one that troubled her the most, the one she called the mansions on Emerson Street, was Jeremy's. A few families on Emerson Street had already decided to sell their homes to get away from the encampment, and some nearby businesses were threatening to move elsewhere. But instead of surrendering to the reality of an entrenched camp during the pandemic, Yvonne had been posting about it on community forums and holding neighborhood meetings to push for its removal. Portland officials were receiving hundreds of complaints about illegal campsites each week from across the city, and Yvonne believed there was only one way for an out-of-the-way neighborhood to get the city's attention. Report it and keep reporting it she told her neighbors. And so some residents had gone into the city's website each week to create a public record of life on Emerson Street as the pandemic unfolded. I watched daily as the fortress of garbage grows. You've got sanitation issues. You got drug issues. You've got prostitution issues. You've got violence towards the residents of the encampment. You got violence towards those around the encampment. You've literally got crazy people running around that shouldn't be running around, screaming at nobody, screaming at others in the encampment. It, it's just that is life in an encampment, right? So I watch daily as the fortress of garbage grows, loud banging and glass breaking noises at 2 or 3 a.m. I even did a podcast early on in the uh, pandemic of a metal shop that was being illegally run in the encamp in, in an encampment. Oftentimes, you've got, uh, you know, these extension cords like you would buy at Home Depot coming off of, you know, city power uh, structures. You know, they're just jacking city power to run their, you know, whatever they've got in their encampments illegally. They're not paying for power. You and I as 
you know, tax paying citizens, we're paying for their power. And then we pay for the city to come through and clean up the encampment. It is hundreds of thousands of dollars all the time, because encampments are expensive to, to, uh, to sweep. I understand we're in the midst of a pandemic. I also understand that the city council has put in place rules as far as moving people. I am truly compassionate about their circumstances. But they're not living here responsibly or legally, and they are putting everyone around them at risk. There you go, right? So you might say, oh, they're not really hurting anybody. But they are. And we read about it all the time. And that's when an encampment basically gets uh, swept is when you've got enough calls and the city goes, all right, we got a hot potato here, we got to deal with this. This camp keeps increasing in size and they are burning garbage at night. This is right outside Broadway cab where fire and gasoline don't mix. And how many times have I talked about fire and uh, nylon tents don't mix? So yeah, there's that as well, right? Junk everywhere, loud noises and trash. The same thing I've been reporting for months, but nothing ever happens. The flames from their fires are six feet high as seen from my window. Noxious smoke fills the air. It makes breathing difficult. I am now using an inhaler because of lung issues. I have to bring in my animals, close the windows, run AC units and air cleaners. But they're not hurting anybody. That's what the opposition would say. Well, how would you like to live like next to that? A hard time breathing because of an illegal homeless encampment that the city isn't doing anything about? Ooh, I'd have a tough time paying my tax dollars if that was going on. What does it take to get rid of this site? Question mark, question mark. They are making me and my wife sicker every day. The toxic smoke and thieves creeping around at all hours has our anxiety maxed out. Please. These are taxpaying citizens that are telling the city, hey, you got to do something. But we've got this whole paradox with the whole CDC thing and don't sweep, but you got to sweep. And that's what's happening literally right now across the United States in cities that have allowed this to happen, right? The camp is right next to our high school. Needles are found at the basketball court where our students play. Some of the students are rehabilitating from drugs, and this just makes it unacceptable, to say the least. There's been vandalism to the school's vehicles, stolen bikes, human waste, ongoing drug use, the list goes on. But they're not hurting anybody. All right. Mm, there might be an argument made to they are and they're leaving they're living illegally and this shouldn't be going on please 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 clean this spot please find a way to permanently address this issue please i shouldn't have to beg but i'm begging you at this point this is a citizen who lives next to this the neighbors had filed 174 complaints about emerson street since the start of the pandemic 174 that is nuts they'd called 911 about homelessness issues at least 14 times the fire department respond to two out-of-control campfires. These are the usual things, right? The city had tried sending out social workers and trash cleanup teams. And finally, now, after so many months, Yvonne started the latest community meeting by announcing that maybe the end had finally come. The city just issued the two-day warning, she said. Hallelujah. I think it's three in Seattle. Portland's different. Every, every jurisdiction has its own thing. Um, Jeremy, he's our... He's our longstanding guy. He's our guy at the beginning of the story, mowing the yard. Jeremy uh, spent the first of those two days at the encampment uh, 
tinkering with a bros- broken bicycle. All right. Jeremini is in denial. He's not yet processed that he's got to go. Another resident drank half a bottle of whiskey. Okay. All right. We're not moving in the right direction here, are we? No. But, you know, these folks, they are not mentally sound. They shouldn't be living in these situations with this all going on. They just shouldn't be there. And yet, our compassionate, progressive leaders want to say, ah, we love our fellow human beings so much, we're just going to allow them to do this. It's okay. They'll be fine. They'll work it out. Another talked to herself and recited Bible verses while she searched for flakes of gold in the mud outside of her tent. All right. We are roughly three for three of not being all there mentally, right? Meanwhile, Shannon woke up to her alarm at 4.30 a.m., drove 90 minutes to her construction job site, worked an eight-hour shift doing finishing work on a new bank, stopped on her way to home to deliver five online food orders to earn extra money, and then returned to the camp 12 hours later to find everything exactly the same as she'd left it. (sighs) That's tricky. That's where I found this story interesting. Even if this isn't true, it brings up some points that you're like, okay, yeah, that's probably exactly about how this would go, right? Hey, the clock's ticking, she said to Jeremy. Are we getting organized to move out of here or what? He looked up from working on his bicycle, lifted his beer. All right, so he's working on a bike and this sounds like a good Saturday and drinking his beer. Unfortunately, he's got an eviction order and he's got to go. I lifted his beer and raised it in her direction. I'm still in the processing phase, he said. All right, meaning he's doing nothing, he's having a little mini party, and he's just going to ignore the fact that they got to get going. This probably isn't his first rodeo, is it? But it is Shannon's first rodeo. Okay, she said, while you do that, I guess I'll go find us a storage unit. Now it's us, a storage unit. So I'm guessing they're, you know, they have, um, they have joined forces. I don't know. She met Jeremy six months earlier after she discovered that her daughter was stopping by the homeless encampment, sometimes after school, giving away secondhand clothes and befriending a few residents. And her daughter is 13. At first, Shannon had been furious. Yep, I would be too. And she repeated the same warnings to her daughter about drug use, fire and petty crime that she'd seen from her neighbors on the community message board. But then she started coming along with her daughter to the camp where she rarely saw any needles and where she'd grown to appreciate Jeremy's dark sense of humor. She'd started telling him about all the ways her own life was unraveling. And when she mentioned that she was losing her home, running out of money and considering sleeping in her car, he suggested she park it next to the encampment so he could help make sure that she was safe. Ooh, okay. He'd made a little money by recycling cans and used it to buy pet food for her two dogs. Another resident of the camp had welcomed her with a gift of deodorizer spray and a bucket she could use as a bathroom. She, they taught her how to use a nearby truck stop for showers and how to store her food high up away from rats. She still didn't think of herself as one of them. I wouldn't exactly call us homeless, she told her daughter. 
And she'd refused to consider living in a shelter in part because she couldn't take her dogs, but also because it felt like an admission. She just needed a night or two in her car to figure things out. Just a safe place near the encampment to close her eyes between shifts as she waited for her next paycheck from work. Just a week or so inside one of the tents while she searched real estate applications on her phone for an affordable, dog-friendly apartment. But now three months had gone by and she still couldn't find anything in Portland for less than $1,200. And instead, of moving into a home, she was being evicted from the camp. She thought she needed to save a total of 5000 to pay for her first month's rent, fees, and security deposits in a new apartment. But even though she was making $700 each week, she'd learned that living on the street was expensive. $11 for each trip to the laundromat, $15 to shower at the truck stop, $20 a day for fast food since she had no stove, microwave or refrigerator. That's one of the things that I hear of quite often is that um, no ability to to have hot food. And so your food options are limited. And that's where the fire comes in, you know, trying to cook cook food or heat food up. Very difficult. $3 for a bottled water and a lotto ticket when she needed to use the gas station bathroom that was for customers only. $68 when she wanted to spend a night with her daughter at the cheapest nearby motel. And now a new monthly expense to buy storage for belongings she couldn't afford to take any place else. I'm just looking for whatever's cheapest, she told the receptionist at the storage facility. Let me see what's available, the receptionist said. She typed on her computer while Shannon looked at the sterilized hallways of identical red garage doors, the bathroom scented by perfume, the gleaming floors, and motion sensor lights. It's so nice here, Shannon said. You have a beautiful setup. Thank you. We take a lot of pride in it, but it's getting harder to keep anything looking clean around here. The receptionist motioned out the window and Shannon followed her eyes to a small homeless encampment on the sidewalk. There were four tents crowded together next to a busted RV with a sign in the window that read, never give up. We run a tight ship, the receptionist said. We take our customer security very seriously. It's unpleasant to look at, but it doesn't affect us. We, You don't need to worry. We make sure they never come beyond our driveway. All right. So if you're a business owner, if you own this storage complex, you're worried. This is a salesperson doing a good job of selling this storage uh, facility to a customer. Don't worry about it. You don't need to worry. We make sure they never come beyond our driveway. But if they do, you know, there's not a lot we can do. We can call 911, but it's not a major issue. Your stuff's going to be okay. Trust us. Okay, Shannon said, it won't bother me. I get into work and there's always a pile of trash waiting for me. It's like, come on, people, have a little dignity. This is the receptionist talking. I feel for them, Shannon said. We all have our upside down moments in life. That's true, the receptionist said. She smiled and then slid over a bill for the cheapest storage unit, 10 by 10 uh, foot one on the third floor. Shannon handed over a debit card to pay $81 for the first month and then went right outside to light a cigarette. She smoked as she did the math in her head, subtracting backward from her goal of 5000 calculating what the storage unit would ultimately cost her, imagining a few extra nights in her car or a tent. She finished the cigarette, glanced down at the clean parking lot, and decided to tuck the butt back into her pocket so she could throw it away somewhere else. Then she walked to her car and drove back for her last night in the camp. 
The next morning, before nine, cleanup crews were dispatched to remove encampments across Portland. A city group of city workers, a small group of city workers met to discuss everything that could possibly go wrong. The job of removal of illegal campsites in the liberal city has always required a delicate balance of empathy and enforcement. But during the past year, the work of the three-person homeless and urban camping impact reduction program had become particularly fraught. Before the pandemic, the group had helped carry out 50 or 60 removals each week, which meant encampments stayed small and the most problematic sites were typically gone within a month. But the city had stopped all removals at the beginning of the pandemic, working instead to create 125 emergency hygiene stations to protect homeless people from the worst impacts of COVID-19. So it's, it's not, it's not a wonder and it's not surprising. It's not shocking that these homeless encampments have just exploded in size and number, because if you're not being swept out, you're going to hunker down and just ride it for as long as you can. But literally right now, June, 2021, we are having to deal with the consequences of that. And it's ugly. And it's only going to get uglier. I mean, they're doing sweeps down in California. They're doing sweeps in Portland. They're doing sweeps in Seattle. They're sweeping all this stuff because it's gotten out of control. And we've got this, all right, here in King County and city of Seattle, we've got like 70% of the population has been vaccinated. And so people are like, all right, it's time to get a move on. We, we got to get back to a little bit of normal. And in the downtown urban cores, city is doing some sweeps because they need to be able to bring for their big employers who rent all the office space, who have the trickle down effect for all the to bring all their employees back who buy and consume all the stuff in the downtown area, they need to make that a little bit more hospitable, because it's been looking ugly during the pandemic, because all of these encampments have just hey, if there's nobody telling you to get out on a nightly or weekly basis, or even on a monthly basis, you're going to hunker down, and you're going to get comfortable. And now it's time for all that comfortableness to go, unfortunately. I mean, if, if you're on the wrong side of that. So when the city decided to resume a small number of removals five months later, the encampments had become so much bigger and more entrenched that it sometimes took crews up to three weeks just to remove a single site, even as dozens of other encampments continued to grow. I don't know if you've seen a large scale uh, encampment sweep, but um, oftentimes like the Department of Transportation comes in because they've got the big, they've got backhoes and they've got dump trucks and they've got trailers and they've got crews and guys with helmets. Damn cord is caught. They, um, they've got uh, the ability to move large scale garbage and that's what we're going to read about here very shortly. You got to take out tons and tons and tons of garbage. Can't remember Echo Park down in LA. Again, German and Venice covered that really well. I don't remember how many tons of garbage it was, or maybe Cal Anderson Field, the field here at CHOP, how many tons of garbage they moved out of there. But it was a lot to the point where you're like, holy cow, that's a lot of garbage. Just the the thought of bringing in that many pounds of anything by hand and then leaving it there. It's like, this is shocking. But is anything shocking in 2021? Mm, 
Yeah. Now officials estimated it would take up to two years in Portland to remove millions of pounds of homeless related trash and get the city back to its pre pandemic condition. And already Portland residents had run out of patience. They're at their wits end. The impact reduction team was receiving a record 1700 phone calls, emails and online complaints about illegal encampments each week. Thanks for turning Portland into a dump. You have failed. How about I pitch a tent outside your house? And then there was other threats which came from the opposite perspective, that it was inhumane to remove camps at all. That's the one where I'm like, have you seen what's going on here? Have you seen the way these folks are living? That's the inhumane part. A group of far left activists had begun offering support and also protection to some large encampments, occasionally carrying weapons and vowing to stop removals by force. Seen a lot of that, right? And you're just like, okay, yeah, we're not really advocating for the homeless rights. That's not what they're doing. They've got a different agenda, right? So the city decided the best way forward was to increase removals, but, but only as what it called an act of last resort. First, a team of social workers went into each camp to refer people to homeless shelters, mental health services, and addiction treatment. They screened residents for a small number of spots in permanent housing. They offered to help apply for state IDs and jobs. They cleaned all the surrounding trash, hoping to mitigate the impact of the camp. And only then, if the camp continued to present a hazard to both residents and the public after days or often months of intervention, did the city post a 48-hour warning and add it to a weekly list of sites to remove. So often, what you will have is that, you know, homeless services will come out time and time and time again, they'll talk to the people in the encampment. And then only at the very end, they they post and then it's like, all right, you got to be out of here. We're we're bringing in Department of Transportation or City of Seattle or whomever it is that's going to come come clean it out. On this Monday, the city sent its contractors a list of 14 sites. A middle school with two tents and three broken down RVs blocking access to the student drop-off zone. Not good. A vacant lot near Costco where some homeless residents had been living for long enough to lay concrete foundations and start building rustic homes. A highway underpass with at least 20 residents where the nearby building was charred by fire damage. See that fairly often, right? Fire. A cul-de-sac littered with stolen and disassembled vehicles located next to the DMV. Not a good look. During the past several years, Portland had systemically uh, eliminated some of its tools for policing life in homeless encampments. Oregon had decriminalized the possession of small amounts of heroin and methamphetamine, which were common in camps. Portland had cut its police budget by 15 million and gutted its neighborhood response team. And just recently, the uh, rapid response team has disbanded in Portland because they are basically boycotting the indictment of one of their own for using a baton the way that they're trained and the way that they're supposed to against a protester who was trying to break up an arrest. That's going on. Increasingly, the city's homeless enforcement was left up to teams of contractors armed with nothing but de-escalation training, heavy-duty gloves, naloxone to treat opioid overdoses, Garbage bags and orange buckets to carry away human waste. Oh, it's just, it's just gross reading about it, right? I mean, I'm sure you listening are thinking, oh, 
The crews have dealt with fires, mental health crises, outbreaks of infectious disease, and anarchists who tried to stop removals by standing in front of their trucks. And now one of those trucks pulled up to the encampment on Emerson Street. All right. So there's a camp. There's a truck coming up. Jeremy was the only person in the camp when the truck arrived. Shannon was off, off at work. And a few of the other residents had already moved or scattered. So he walked alone onto the street to greet three contractors wearing red construction vests. They handed him sandwiches and water and said they would begin the removal by hauling away several truckloads of unwanted trash to the city dump. They told Jeremy to start going through his belongings to decide what he wanted to keep. I don't under understand how I'm bothering anybody. All right. So you're living illegally and you've got all this stuff going on that we just talked about, right? So I don't understand how I'm bothering anybody. That's the mindset that is difficult for the taxpaying residents. You're like, what? Are you kidding me? But when, it, when nobody answered, he went back into the camp to sort through his things as a few neighbors began gathering on the sidewalk to watch the removal. We need to claim this space as our own, said Yvonne, the president of the Neighborhood Association. As soon as he's gone, so it sounds like he's the very last one left, right? We should turn it into a community garden or a fenced-in dog park, said Rhonda Johnson, who worked on the homelessness issues for the Neighborhood Association. Sure, anything, Yvonne said. I'd be okay bringing in some boulders just to make camping impossible. You will see that uh, in California. They'll bring in like sharp rocks and stuff where you can't pitch a tent. Yvonne went to buy donuts and drinks for the contracting crew as a thank you gift. And Rhonda walked into the camp to talk to Jeremy, who had been trying to get help. She'd been trying to get help for for the last year. She brought him trash bags and food during the pandemic and encouraged him to get his COVID vaccination. Several times she'd offered to take him to her office where they could call shelters, but he always refused, just as he'd refused housing and efforts made by the city. The Portland area had only 1,500 shelter beds for more than 4,000 homeless people, which meant shelters could be restrictive. Many required wait lists and signed agreements about curfews, cleanliness, and community living. Jeremy had told Rhonda that he was better off on his own outside where he could store all of his things. What's the plan now, Jeremy? She asked. Do you even know where you're sleeping tonight? Why? So you can start reporting me again to the city? I'm serious, she said. You can't keep moving around this neighborhood with a mountain of trash. She walked through the camp and looked at the stacks of Jeremy's belongings. The contractors had already taken away an old piano, two couches, a kitchen sink, some cabinetry, and five orange buckets of waste. Mm. But most of the field was still covered with things Jeremy wanted to keep or put into storage. Dozens of bikes, car tires, shopping cars, and old leather chairs. Rhonda pointed to a rusted fireplace with a bent exhaust pipe. I mean, what are you going to do with this? Might be able to fix it, he said. You ever slept outside in December? It's damn cold. Yeah, but you've got a broken fireplace with a bent exhaust pipe. Should you be operating a fire outside near your tent? The answer is no. But this is what we're working with, right? Somebody's just not dealing with a full deck of cards here. She rolled her eyes and walked over to a stack of wood pallets, tarps, and broken tar trampoline parts. She picked up a bucket filled with hundreds of rusted nails. Come on, Jeremy. This is a hazard. It has to go. Construction supplies, he said. He smiled at her. That's my next camp. Jeremy, it's junk. To you, he said. It's junk to you. I find stuff. I fix it up. I use it. I sell it. I'm not going around begging or asking for anything from anybody. This is it. This is how I get by. 
All right. She looked at him and shook her head. You need a solution, Jeremy, a real permanent solution, a real solution, he said, got it. Thanks for your concern. Guy just wants to live out on his own doing his own thing, right? Took the contracting crew five days and a half a dozen trips to haul out 8,000 pounds to the dump. You ever been to the dump? And I think it, I think a a ton of dump in our King County waste transfer stations, it's not a dump, is like 125 bucks. What is it where you guys live? I I mean, is, is it really expensive here in Seattle? I'm not really sure. I've just grown up with used to be like a minimum, the minimum dump fee, we're always going to the dump because my dad was always buying houses and doing whatever. And uh, we always had projects going on and stuff. So we're always going to the dump. Uh, I remember the minimum fee was $3.50. Now it's like 25 bucks. You know, you got to pay to play and you got to haul your stuff off because you can't just leave it on the sidewalk, right? So until finally the encampment was gone and the field was vacant except for Jeremy and Shannon, who were still sitting in the grass trying to decide where to go. What do you think, Shannon asked? Give me your options. Does it look like I have options, Jeremy said. Shannon had booked a few nights in a motel to bide time while Jeremy looked for a new place to camp. He put most of his belongings into storage, but he still had a few rickety carts loaded with tents, tarps, and construction supplies, which he, which meant he couldn't travel far. You got to carry all that stuff. He'd scouted out a possible spot on a hill overlooking a factory, but he doubted his carts could make it up the embankment. He'd consider moving into an existing encampment on a highway median, but it was exposed to heat and wind and a homeless person had been found dead in his tent in the same spot a few years earlier. Ah, that's not a good sign. I might have one idea, he said, and he led Shannon up the road to a small house in the center of the neighborhood where the owner had been paying Jeremy $15 to mow the yard. An azalea hedge bordered the lawn and next to the hedge was an empty patch of grass less than 10 yards wide. You're crazy, Shannon said. What's going to happen when these neighbors wake up in the morning and see you? They know me, Jeremy said. They like me. All right. They like you, but they don't necessarily want you to live there. They don't like you that much. They'll go ballistic. Shannon has a head on her shoulders, right? You think anyone's rolling out a welcome mat, Jeremy asked. Why do you think I'm going to move in the middle of the night? It can't be here, Shannon said. No, no way. They sat on the sidewalk until the last light disappeared from the sky. Shannon smoked a cigarette and Jeremy drank a beer. It started to rain and Jeremy rushed into the street to throw a tarp over his trailers. Damn it, he said. Then he looked down the street and he saw what seemed at that moment like his best and only option for a new place to live. It wasn't a house. It wasn't an apartment or a shelter or a real solution. It was a tiny strip of burnt grass wedged between the sidewalk and the taxicab company on the exact same street where neighbors had been complaining about his encampment since the pandemic beginning. He walked 75 yards down the block from the old camp and pitched a tent. He carried over another tent and then another and then a shopping cart loaded with some of his things. By the time the sun came up the next morning, the Sumner neighborhood had a new homeless encampment and already the first official complaint was on its way to the city. Importance high, the email read. And underneath that was the subject line. Same camp back on Emerson Street. Oof, brutal, right? Imagine if you're a neighbor. There's a photo of Jeremy here. He's cleaning up the sidewalk with a leaf blower. Everything he owns has been moved, but he didn't move it far, did he? No, that is exactly how this goes. If you're around homeless encampments enough, they get swept out 
And it's, it's that whack-a-mole game, right? Where you push them out from one area without a permanent solution, without permanent services to help these folks out. Guess what? It's just this ever, ever shifting landscape of tents and governmental leaders that just aren't really doing much or, or so overwhelmed that they just can't figure out, you know, their end route. But um, yeah, they're dealing with it now. They're dealing with it a large scale. And it's two years, they're never going to get out ahead of, of, of uh, sweeping all these camps, just not going to happen. And so in the meantime, things just get worse, right? I mean, that's what we're looking at. So to keep up with these sweeps, it's these areas that have had this, this go on. I mean, whew, crazy story, right? But this, this is how that happens. So if you wonder, how did we get there? This story is exactly how we got there. And how moving forward, we'll keep going there. Because you've got massive affordability issues, got addiction issues, got people that are crazy, that once used to be taken care of in facilities. Now you don't have that, because we just let everybody out of the mental institutions. And then we don't enforce that anybody not live on the sidewalk or not live where they shouldn't live. We do in some cities. But the ones we're talking about, yeah, we're so compassionate for a fellow human being, we just let them live wherever. And then you've got these stories like two people found dead in Seattle homeless encampment because their tent caught on fire and they burned up. Or you got people shooting each other in the homeless encampments. That is the reality. But people don't want to talk about that. Because then you'd have to actually do something. So yeah, tricky, right? It's a tricky thing. It's a tricky thing. And you don't want to you don't want to just sweep people out. But then again, this stuff has gotten out of control. And you're like, all right, we got to start somewhere. You got to start somewhere. You got to go down that road of all right, you need to start working on cleaning up these cities. It's happening. And um, what a mess, right? It's a mess. That's all I've got. Do I have any great solutions? No, but I think um, I mean, I don't have, you know, end run solutions I do this and it'll solve everything. I think it, it takes a lot of different aspects of addressing these issues. And in these big cities, they are so coming from behind that they don't really know what to do. And you're going to be stuck with this because we've got literally billions of dollars being spent on this stuff. And it's just getting worse. It's just getting worse. But in some cities, they figure out how to keep it under control. Shocking, isn't it? Hmm. Yeah. As this storyline continues, I'll bring it for you right here in the Seattle Real Estate Podcast. So hopefully you found that interesting. Um, it kind of gives you a little bit of insight. All right, this is these are the actual mechanisms of what these people are dealing with, what the neighbors are dealing with, what the city is dealing with, with what the outreach uh, people who are dealing with. This is what we got. This is what we're dealing with. All right. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for being a part of the Seattle Real Estate Podcast. I am not afraid to cover these topics. I know they're not exactly, and I know this is a really long podcast coming up on an hour here. I know this is a really long one, but I think it um, it bears the the time it took to read this story. There we are. All right. Thanks so much again for being here with the Seattle Real Estate Podcast. I will catch you on the next one. Until then, stay safe. We'll see you soon. Bye for now. to subscribe to our channel and hit the notification bell so you'll know when our next video is out.